was about bringing up controversial subjects and a series of quests for strange horrors. It feels good. Guidance is internal. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity. Do not think there are things in this universe which you cannot understand and which are true. Welcome to Far Off Topic, episode 24. I'm your host, Fiasco Jones, and I'm recording all by myself again. At this point, it would appear that I have parted ways with sanity and now talk to myself inside a tiny closet for reasons known only to God and the alien nematode that resides inside my head named Conroy. Once again, I have been abandoned by my Fairweather co-hosts. Jax has decided to let the medical industrial complex have a whack at his teeth for some unknown reason. I tried to counsel him from putting his faith in the quack science of dentistry, but my advice was rebuffed. Meanwhile, Tiwi tells me she doesn't follow enough 1950s-era UFO lore to feel confident talking on the subject. Seriously? Where's she been, am I right? Who wasn't whiling away the day in the conference room of their local television station watching UFO documentaries on the History Channel in lieu of editing breaking news? To be honest, there wasn't much to do on the early weekend shift. It was pretty routine. Shoot a package and some Vosots in the morning and be back at the station for lunch. The only thing left to do was edit the package and set up the live shot for the 5 p.m. show. Easy. Like I said, really routine. Which means I had plenty of time to digest unhealthy quantities of UFO documentaries or whatever paranormal trash was being offered by the History Channel that day. Those were good times. That was back in the 1990s, of course, uh, when the bizarre was really taking hold of the mainstream. And living in Idaho in particular... It felt like it was the epicenter of weirdness. Idaho is a very odd place. Of course, I'm sure everyone that's aware of strange things around them thinks they're at the epicenter of weirdness. Let me disabuse you of your errancy. Idaho is the epicenter of weirdness. All other weirdness is a a mere emanation from that one source. Just kidding. Uh, Your weirdness is is as as unique and beautiful just like my own (laughs) right idaho's lineage of weird is one steeped in the bill cooper kind of paranoid political fanaticism that we now recognize as conspiracy theory there was something in the soil of idaho which just loved to grow that paranoid style waco and oklahoma city became touchstones for a type of person prone to political histrionics The same type of people who saw the Ruby Ridge incident, which was in Idaho, as one in a line of falling dominoes ending with the complete totalitarian takeover of the United States. This belief further took shape with rumors, myths, and urban legends of alleged federal covert missions such as sightings of Bill Clinton's black helicopters flying low across the state on their way toward mischief. If you listen to the right radio stations, you could hear people talking about the New World Order, secret weapons programs, and cattle mutilations, sometimes in the same breath. All of which with the urgency that this was manifesting in the property just out of view from your own. This effectively got the good old boys all lathered up for revolution. They were convinced of mounting government tyranny. They'd become an ever-tensing spring, coiled taut like a rattlesnake, waiting for a moment an undetermined moment in the near future when they knew they would need to pop and slaughter their enemies. It was pretty dark stuff, indeed, but it was also pretty fun. 
You should never lose sight of the excitement factor that drives these beliefs, especially for people who might think that the highest form of patriotism is shouting Wolverines above a newly liberated Walmart in downtown dystopia, USA. I say that because I loved eating up all the paranoid conspiracy detritus almost as much as I loved swallowing bags of Oreos. Neither was good for me, but I knew what I was doing, so it was okay. Back off, Dad. I remember biking down to the local mom-and-pop grocery store with my best friend to pick through the magazine stands. We were hunting for the usual Jim Lee's X-Pen, X-Factor, Punisher War Journal, maybe Soldier of Fortune, but the big get was the latest issue of American Survival Guide. Inside those pages was the handbook for what is now dubbed by new school posers as the Second Civil War. ASG was the OG. Want to know how to restore a World War II era APC for an as yet undetermined future battle of Main Street? Done. Need a quick guide on medicinal plants for dressing burns or stifling a fever? Got it. Need to learn how to build an energy efficient dome home? The guide got you covered. ASG had all the crazy to satisfy your civil dissolution needs. I thought it was great, but I also didn't take it seriously. I was already aware of their political lean, but I, I didn't really care about that. I was most attracted to the avant-garde version of dystopian fiction that the magazine proposed. The meta-narrative stuffed throughout its pages. If you read ASG literally, then uh, it was okay. I mean, it was okay. But if you allowed yourself to be drawn into the imaginary world of social collapse and the promise of day-to-day -day action adventures to come, then the magazine was truly excellent. And I think that, the meta-narrative, is what's hooked a lot of mainly conservatives to these 21st century nouveau conspiracy brands. Brands like QAnon, Alex Jones, and maybe David Icke's reptilian uh, quote-unquote hypothesis. I'm sure there's a meth analogy in here somewhere. The conspiracy of the 90s were fairly benign. They were cut with a lot of strange stuff. There was so much intermixing of conspiracy lore with supernal non-terrestrial elements that many normies inherently knew that these stories or anecdotes were just entertainment, that you probably shouldn't invest your entire life propagating their reality. But buried within many 90s conspiracies were kernels of predominantly right-leaning political angst that would prove to form a kind of through line that muddied the entertainment aspects of the stories. These political motifs also overlaid so seamlessly onto normal reality that the fiction that was once so apparent became indistinguishable from fact. Wash and rinse for a couple of decades and you see the headline, Believer in QAnon Conspiracy Theory Wins Republican Senate Nomination in Oregon. What? I mean, I, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised, but, but what? Joe Ray Perkins bested three other candidates to win the GOP nomination to face Senator Jeff Merkley in November. Where we go, we go all, Perkins said in the video, reciting a QAnon slogan, I stand with President Trump. I stand with Q and the team. Thank you, Anons, and thank you, Patriots, and together we can save the Republic. To be clear, QAnon followers believe that there is a 20-year plan run by a shadowy group of American patriots to clear a path for the eventual election of John F. Kennedy Jr. as the next president to succeed Donald Trump. And that's right, John John, a man who died in 1999. That's the goal. 
The plot further surmises that Donald Trump and his immediate family are themselves combating the day-to-day -day machinations of a cabal of evil globalist operatives entrenched within the government known as the Deep State. The Deep State will stop at nothing to stymie the 20-year plan and prevent the Trump family from helping JFK Jr. become president. This is not a political philosophy. This is not a political platform. This is a synopsis for an early 2000s-era CW teen drama. So how is it that this obvious lunatic idea has captured the minds of so many people? Believers no longer even see the same reality as non-believers. It's as if their minds have been hacked by the conspiracy itself. More than anything, I believe that QAnon is a game. An ARG to be exact. That stands for Alternative Reality Game if you didn't already know. ARGs attempt to blur the lines between objective reality and the proposed reality of the game. They draw you into their narrative with an array of planted narrative media and mind-bending puzzles designed to be solved by a community of internet sleuths. Some people may not even know that they're even playing a game at the outset because, like a magician never telling you how she does her trick, the ARG never tells you it's a game. Notable ARGs are the enigmatically named Cicada 3301, Ong's Hat, and the Jejun Institute. Each of these choose to tell its story or construct its game a little bit differently, but they do adhere to the idea that this is not a game, an attempt to blur the lines between reality and their constructed narrative. Just like the conspiracies of yore, part of the fun is getting lost in the fiction, the meta-narrative. The imaginary second civil war of American Survival Guide was a comfort to introverts hiding out in rural Idaho. By leafing through the pages, its readers were reassured the liberal horde was just over the horizon sharpening their pitchforks in preparation for the baby roast. It not only justified the loneliness, but reinforced a specific political worldview and, to an extent, formed the basis for a small, like-minded community. QAnon does the same thing, only its proposed worldview overlays on top of everything. It never provides an opportunity for the player to turn off the simulation. Every picture, every gesture, every innocuous piece of clothing on the right person is a sign or a clue. Everything is and furthers the narrative. And it won't end after Trump loses in November. Ah, sorry, sorry, my bad. If, if, right? Don't jinx it, if. Regardless, if Biden wins, you can bet QAnon will keep going. Screw the 20-year plan. The writers will just make something else up. Deep State killed John John again, blah, blah, blah. The next messiah, to be sure, will be unnamed. They'll say something like, Biden is a crypto-demonic political succubus trying to bring about the great transformation as opposed to the great awakening proposed by the QAnon folks. Uh, by the way, that's a trademarked thing, so writers, if you use that, I expect to get royalties. And here's the thing, I'm not even sure that having an ARG run amok through society is dangerous or just stupid. I, I really don't know. I mean, it seems bad, right? What I can say is that over the July 4th holiday, I was with my family, and strangely enough, my brother-in-law started asking me if I knew who George Soros was and whether or not it was true he was funding Antifa. My mother-in-law then asked me uh, why her brother keeps talking about celebrities being secret reptiles. I, I couldn't help thinking uh, how much the world has changed. You see, I used to be pretty hard into foreign policy and domestic politics before Trump. After 2016, I steered hard into paranormal and conspiracy subjects because, I mean, I didn't have patience anymore for all that shit. The paranormal was something I was always into, but now it seemed like a good time to just dig deep into the fallow ground of the weird while the rest of the world burned. But goddamn, 
I would never have thought studying the esoteric, seeming frivolous field of what I call odd normalities would actually be relevant in discussing mainstream politics. I, I literally was informing people, like, things have blurred so much into this other gamified reality that my family members who don't really know anything about conspiracies are learning about them just, you know, peripherally as they watch and consume news or talk to family. That's how weird things have gone. The world has truly gone mad. It would seem we are in a grave need for a new kind of American survival guide. A barrier against the derailed fictions pile-driving through their meta-constructed worlds into our own. Who knows, maybe, just maybe, the road back to sanity requires that everyone take a short detour through some place different, an uncanny valley of unexpected twists and turns, onward toward odd normal country. Enjoy the ride. I'll be back after the break. The world is changing, becoming more secular with every year, and with it, many feel like they are losing touch with their spiritual connections. Luckily, that's all about to change thanks to Church of the Elders Friendship Water. Each bottle contains 14 fluid ounces of the world's most pristine Tahitian water, as well as a tiny friend that will help you channel messages from the divine directly to your mind. My friend Billy says I should love the Elder, and I do! I'm better than ever now that my mind is clear of all those intrusive thoughts. I only hear the words of the Elder as dictated to me by my beautiful friend in faith, Priscilla. Friendship Water works by acting as a revolutionary injection platform for the sacred Nemototal brain fry. Once inside a host, the fry swim through the body and anchor themselves to the pineal gland, where they act as antennas that supercharge the individual's natural spiritual conductivity. I was pretty messed up with drugs, gambling, gun smuggling, and obesity before I accepted the healing powers of Friendship Water. Now I've been sober for nine months and work as chief engineer for the Elders Exalted Population Manifold. Uh, my friend uh, Thrask the Quencher, he uh, assures me the hour of expertation is nigh and the voice of the Elder will come to uh, all humankind. I have no idea what he's talking about, but man, helps pass the time sitting here in solitary. Call the toll-free number below, and in three days, you'll receive a bottle of friendship water with your very own friend in faith floating inside. Simply remove the cap and swallow all the contents, and within half an hour, you'll start receiving direct messages from the elder, just like millions of other satisfied humans. It's that easy. Open the bottle and drink. After that, you'll be part of a growing community and like-minded servants of faith working directly to bring peace to the entire planet. Hear the word. Get your bottle of Church of the Elders Friendship Water now, or suffer in silence. You should know that the wretched slide into dystopic conspiracist lunacy wasn't a foregone conclusion. In fact, all the sturm and drang about FEMA camps, reptilian royal families, and pedophilic psychic vampires could have been avoided if we had simply listened to the first wave of good-natured lunatics who shambled out of the Southwest back in the late 1940s and 50s. 
Believe it or not, there was a time when weirdos were pushing otherworldly messages of peace, love, and nuclear disarmament rather than uh, adrenochrome. Two hours drive east from Los Angeles across Interstate 10, past the fields of peculiar-looking Joshua trees and their squat, ever-present yucca cousins, you will reach the edge of the Mojave Desert. This arid nowhere land abounds with a preternatural mystique that seems to birth and nurture bizarre ideas, and the people that think them into existence. Continue north past Palm Springs and you will reach the Homestead Valley of the southeastern Mojave Desert. It's there that you will see, resting seven stories above the sandy valley, the massive boulder known simply as Giant Rock. This monolith has stood century over a changing landscape of mystics, artists, loners, and murderers for millennia. There is something about this strange, seemingly out-of-place object that has attracted reverence and mystery from all the people who set eyes upon it. Native Americans are said to have considered Giant Rock a holy place and used it as a meeting grounds before being driven away or killed. Modern New Age gurus believe that there are supernatural vortexes that imbue the area with a special aura and power. It may have been just such an aura that ensorcelled a man named George Van Tassel in 1947 when he decided to make Giant Rock his home. George had made a decent living working as a flight instructor and mechanic with Southern California's burgeoning airline industry. He claims to have even been the personal test pilot for Howard Hughes, but that claim is disputed by some sources. Regardless, Van Tassel was ambitious and had an entrepreneurial spirit. After deciding to make Giant Rock his home, he quickly decided to repair the rough dirt airfield nearby and turn it into a full-fledged airport. It was there on the night of August 24, 1953, around 2 a.m., while sleeping outside near the antediluvian boulder, that George Van Tassel was awakened from his sleep by a strange feeling. Two o'clock in the morning and uh, approximately a full moon, which is like daylight on the desert. I was sound asleep when he awakened me. Well, something awakened me. I got out of my bed and went aboard the ship at his request. He talked to me in the best English equivalent to Ronald Coleman. I asked him what he wanted, uh, because we have a lot of people come in stuck in the sand and broken axles and whatnot. And uh, I asked him what he wanted, and he said, my name is Solgonda, and I would be pleased to show you our craft. Solgonda? Solgonda. I saw beyond him the ship, well, which I hadn't seen before. What did you see? A bell, a bell-shaped uh, type of uh, anti-gravity uh, ship that they operate as a scout ship out of their big carriers. How big? Uh, this was 36 feet in diameter and 19 feet high. And where was it? On the ground? No, it was hovering 10 feet off the ground. And how did you, did you go into this ship? I walked with him to a spot underneath it and uh, an anti-gravity beam took me up through a hole in the bottom. Once teleported aboard, Solgonda and three other male humanoid aliens showed Van Tassel the craft's celestial navigational instrumentation and other features, including retractable seating, all described to Van Tassel via thought transference or telepathy. After the 20-minute inspection of the ship, Solgonda walked George back to his bed and vanished. This encounter was one of the first recorded instances that would mark the beginning of the contactee movement. Characterized by peculiar personalities like George Adamski, Truman Bethram, and George King, who all claimed to have come face-to-face -face with people from another planet, 
Some were con men and charlatans for sure, but many were dreamers and proto-hippie peaceniks that found a message that resonated with their out-of-this-world sci-fi interests. George Van Tassel became one of the driving advocates for the movement. Doing interviews and holding meditation sessions from an excavated home underneath Giant Rock itself. His biggest contribution to the cause was organizing an annual gathering for fellow UFO contactees and anyone curious or patient enough to attend. These would be known as the Giant Rock UFO Conventions. I was aboard a flying saucer in the Nevada desert on 11 different occasions. I was taken into this monstrous saucer by one of the men and confronted with a lady captain. Beautiful complexion, beautiful appearing woman and a peaceful people. They mean no harm to us. They come down here to investigate what's going on on Earth. And uh, they certainly convinced me that they're peaceful and they come from another planet they call Clarion. They told me there was life on Mars and that there were life on other planets as well. And all planets except Earth had interplanetary means of travel. I seem to become one with the entire universe. Everything in the universe seemed to be contracted down to one small dot. I have a picture here of the gentleman who escorted me through the craft, and I would like to show it and describe it. This gentleman, uh, he appeared almost as I am, except that he was about 5 feet 10 inches tall, weighing about 150 to 155 pounds, and they all appeared about that same size, including the lady. On July the 12th, I took a trip in a flying saucer which I am pointing right here. The uh, saucer was well equipped with rooms, bedrooms, bathrooms, toilets, and uh, this saucer, I went up into Mars, over the moon, Venus, Clarion, and Orion. When I say Orion, I do not mean Orion. It is a planet out side of our galaxy. What were that clothes like? Uh, the woman had a radiant red box pleated skirt and a black velvet appearing blouse and a black and red fam or beret and the men had clothes very similar to our Greyhound bus drivers. Uh, they told me that language was no barrier to them anywhere. They could speak any language. So they told you that in English? Yes. Much of the claims from the contactees don't hold up to modern sensibilities. Similar to how the old photos of little girls sitting next to a troop of fairies comes across as a transparent fraud to people who've been raised shooting, editing, and looking at photos all their lives. The testimonies of the contactees come across as people who were radically affected by the pulp sci-fi tropes of their time. From the clothes, cosmology, and design aesthetics, it's easy to criticize their apparent lack of imagination. When you look at the crude drawings showing the floor plan for the three-story space vehicle purportedly driven by six-foot-tall nubile Nordic space angels, it's no wonder that normies everywhere thought that the contactees were kooks. But their message was much more serious. By and large, the alleged messages that were proffered by the alien intelligences or their human ambassadors hewed closely to Judeo-Christian motifs leaning toward unity, friendship, and loving one's neighbor. There were also clear influences from the theosophical teachings of Helena Blavatsky, which added a tinge of the occult to the mix. But a major talking point and purported motive for the alien contacts was humanity's headlong race towards self-destruction. 
The threat of nuclear annihilation was a tremendously real fear during the Cold War era, and it would seem the contactees were not beyond its grip. A great many of the alleged alien contacts would add warnings that governments should dismantle their arsenals and embrace peace rather than war. In the 1950s, that was as fringe as you get, trying to have peace with old Ivan. Yeah, right. It was mostly a message of yearning hope, a desire for peace, love, and mutually assured survival. That this prefigured the 1960s hippie New Age counterculture, I don't think is a coincidence. A lasting monument to that hopeful and kooky era still stands to this day. At the corner of Lynn Road and Belfield Boulevard in Landers, California, stands the radiant white dome of the Integratron. Rising out of the desert like some kind of hybrid between a house and a flying saucer, the Integratron was built by George Van Tassel after his alleged meeting with Solganda in 1953 and to his specific instructions. The building is actually intended to be a massive machine. Once fully complete, the machine would have the power to rejuvenate human cells and restore health, a kind of uh, pulp sci-fi fountain of youth. Unfortunately, George never completed the Integratron, so it's now a meeting place for like-minded fellow travelers on the road to the odd normal. I was able to visit the Integratron in 2013. I was coming back home after seeing the reunited post-punk outfit Quicksand play in San Diego. My trip to one of the only remaining monuments of contacteeism was very last minute, and, and I didn't even know what I'd find when I got there. I didn't know if it would be abandoned or closed to the public, but I knew I wanted to make a pilgrimage there. Having seen videos about it since I was a young man sitting in a television station watching UFO documentaries on my lunch breaks, I knew I wanted to see the place where weirdness happened. That odd normal place in the desert somewhere, nowhere in particular. When I arrived, I found the gate wide open with maybe two other cars in the parking lot. I didn't see anyone selling tickets or monitoring who came or went. So I parked and uh, got out and I walked straight toward the Integratron. It was like meeting someone famous. It, it looked smaller in person and I could see the creases of age the closer I got. But I was still impressed and awed by its presence. Going inside, I was greeted by a modest museum of sorts on the first floor. Newspaper clippings of George Van Tassel hung from the walls next to a miniature diorama of the Integratron itself. A bookshelf nearby contained a variety of titles about UFOs, yoga, and similar subjects. It's about then when I noticed the sounds coming from the second floor. At first, I mistook them for some nondescript New Age soundscape, but as I ascended the stairs, I realized that this was actually a performance. The second floor opened up to a massive cathedral-like space gleaming of polished wood. The dome was warm and bright and filled with the echoes and reverberations of that singularly ethereal music. At the far side of the dome, a woman was sitting stoically behind an array of pure white crystal bowls. In her hands was a kind of rod which she rubbed across the inner surface of the bowls to create a sonorous ethereal sound. Very much what you might think you'd hear if you rubbed a half-full wine glass, only deeper and... Uh, different. In front of the bowls were five or six people on yoga mats, lying on their backs, clearly meditating on the sounds filling the large wooden dome. 
This made every creaking step I took around the area uh, that much more painful, but luckily I, no one was alarmed, no one cared. I moved freely through the second floor. I took a picture of what looked like a, a makeshift altar to someone or something, perhaps Solganda. I'm not sure. And then I just relaxed and I, I took a moment to bask in the scene, just kind of lurking conspicuously at the far edge of this circular room, watching and listening to what I have now learned is called a sound bath. I tried to take it all in, you know, preserve it for later use. So this is where strange minds like to think alike, I thought to myself. Neat. I wouldn't know it until a few years later how rare that experience would be. On two other occasions, I tried to go back into the Integratron, but it was closed to the public. So I'm glad I listened to that voice in my head that urged me on into the desert that day on my pilgrimage to the unknown. Giant Rock went on to play host to thousands at each of its eponymous UFO conventions from the mid-1950s on to the late 70s. A few years after the last convention in 1978, George Van Tassel died suddenly of a heart attack while staying at a motel. Legend has it that all of the documents and plans for the completion of the Integratron that he had with him, they all vanished. Almost 70 years after George Van Tassel met Solganda on that dusty desert night in the shadow of Giant Rock, a group of astronomers and astrophysicists took another crack at estimating the number of civilizations in our galaxy. This had already been done, of course, by Frank Drake in 1961, but scientists being scientists, they thought they could do better. On June of this year, astronomers published a paper with their revised calculations. After all was said and done, they concluded that there are most likely 36 advanced civilizations out there capable of some form of contact. Their announcement came and went without much fanfare. Maybe the prospect of making contact with creatures from distant stars has just lost its appeal. Or perhaps the answer just isn't necessary because it's more fulfilling to wonder. Just before I left the Integratron that day in January, I peeked through one of the small windows cut out at even spaces around the dome, and I looked out at the desolate valley outside. I could see how that vast isolation and open expanse could foster the imagination to dream of distant civilizations and the possibility that they might one day come down to visit us. It seemed possible, or maybe I just liked the thought that someone else thought it was possible. I like the idea that outside, in that wasteland, is a magical place of unexplainable wonders that don't need explanations. Watching the sun begin to set from inside Van Tassel's earthbound spaceship, I felt a little bit like a traveler to another world. Perhaps a distant civilization where hope and imagination were the universal language. Good times. So, uh, that was the second solo outing. Um, we will have Tiwi and Jax here eventually. I'm heading out to Abu Dhabi, so who knows? Maybe we'll have a third solo outing, or maybe I'll be able to get the gang together and we'll do our first kind of, uh, I guess, more remote. We always do it remotely, but maybe this will be the, the remote remote, you know, from the Middle East. Um, we'll see. We'll see if that comes together or not. In the meantime... You can reach us on Facebook at Far Off Topic Show and Far Off Topic on all the other socials. 
You can reach me via Twitter at Fiasco Jones. And Tiwi can be reached at Jenny Says Stuff. And of course, Jax's information has been hidden from the public. But if you look carefully, you can find it. All new episodes are posted to our YouTube account where you can find the full show notes. The YouTube account is, of course, called Far Off Topic. So, you know, we're trying to keep that the branding together. It makes sense, yeah? If you'd like to support the show, feel free to comment or rate. Most of all, thank you for listening. And until you hear from us again, so mote it be. Off topic.